We are one step closer to 2024's Leap Day. It is Tuesday, February 27th. And 10 years ago today, a technical glitch meant 61,000 job seekers in Stockholm, Sweden, were all invited to the same job interview at the same time, which resulted, as you might imagine, in thousands turning up and the police ended up needing to be called for crowd control. At the time, unemployment in Sweden was 8.6%, so tensions tensions were high, shall we say, when it became apparent what had happened. You'd feel like you were part of a terrible sitcom. Anyway, kia ora, this is Newsable, I'm Imogen, and this is what's worth talking about. The government says its proposed gang laws have worked in Australia, so there's no need to question them. But why is one Aussie expert warning of unintended consequences? Forbes has said personalising things is going to be one of 2024's biggest business trends. We're finding out why we love having our names slapped on things. And one day he was watching the Olympics, the next he's been selected to compete. We meet the 19-year-old who will be representing New Zealand in Paris later this year in speed climbing. All that's coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. Something that has been part and parcel of New Zealand's life for decades really be about to disappear from our streets. The government plans to introduce legislation in the next few days that would ban gang patches in public and give police special powers to break up gang gatherings. Courts would also be able to stop gang members associating with one another as well. The legislation is expected to be introduced in the next few days with the Justice Minister Paul Goldsmith saying it was based on laws in Australia that have, as he says, worked. Mark Locks is an Associate Professor at the University of Queensland who specialises in motorcycle gangs and is here to tell us whether or not they have worked. Mark, welcome. How are you? I am great, thank you. Just to start off, the laws around gang patches, are these nationwide? So every state and territory has brought in their own version, except for the Australian Capital Territory, which is Canberra. So there's not a national law because it's a state um, power. These ones specifically around banning gang patches, have they worked? So this is one of those great policy questions. When you say works, we need to work out what they wanted it to do. And mm. whether anyone ever explicitly said what their plan was, what it did do, and the only place any research was done was in Queensland after the laws came in 10 years ago, was people felt safer. People felt safer because they didn't see that intimidation of the clubs. And we're specifically talking about the Gold Coast, which is where mm. most of the club activity was happening at that time. And there was a lot of feedback saying, look, I mean, you know, even unintentional extortion on the part of bikers who would hang around a coffee shop until the owner just said, I really want you guys to not around there anymore because you're scaring away my clientele and would give them some money to stay away. That day-to-day -day intimidation of bikies being on the street, being together in their patches, being there, what they call the power of the patch actually works, that went away. Mm. So a perception of safety definitely occurred as a result of that. Now, having said that, that is the only evaluation of any part of any of the laws that's taken place anywhere in Australia. So when once again, we come back to the policy question, what were the laws intended to do? No one was really clear and no one tested to see if they did anything. So it doesn't appear to have had, had any effect on gang numbers, say? So Queensland did because we were the first state to have a successful law pass the High Court. And what happened there was 
5% of the bikies who did 90% of all the crime associated with bikies, knowing that 90% of bikies don't even have a serious traffic offence, mm. a lot of them left Queensland. Right. So it's what criminologists call displacement. They went somewhere else. New Zealand is going to have a national law. There's nowhere to displace to. Have we seen any downsides in any of these state-by-state introduced policies? With any of these laws, there's there's a massive um, unintended consequences. So some of the powers that were brought in, ideally to deal with motorcycle gangs, get exploited. So the Ombudsman in New South Wales found that the anti-consorting powers, the inability to associate together, has been used more on street kids and gangs than motorcycle gangs or organised crime members. So not necessarily people that have been associated with gangs, is that what you're saying? That's right. So the original Queensland legislation, which was full of a whole lot of very spiteful things like bikies would all have to wear pink jumpsuits in prison and stuff like that, was targeted at motorcycle gangs. The other legislation and our current Queensland legislation is targeted at organised crime. But it actually means that these really tough laws that have major human rights issues can be applied to almost anybody in the community. And it's a bit funny that when the first Queensland laws came in, a whole lot of unions said, oh, you know, if the government wants to, they could apply this to the unions. Well, they couldn't under that legislation, but they could under the new legislation. So the standard practice across Australia is extremely broad. It has a lot of unintended consequences. So, for example, a lot of members of motorcycle gangs and their family who ran businesses like tattoo parlors, motorcycle repair shops and so forth, security firms, can't practice anymore because of their association with a motorcycle gang. Mm. Now, those individual members may have absolutely no criminal record whatsoever, but because of this association, they lose the business they could have run for 40 years. Mm. Now, you can see how these things build up. Has it stopped the guys who are committing the most major crimes? Probably not. Has it really destroyed the lives of a whole lot of people? Yes, it has. How do we then tackle the lawlessness associated with gangs and, and, and bikey gangs then? My argument is better quality policing and better police powers to investigate the crimes committed by the bikies and better laws for conspiracy to commit crimes has been far more successful. And you've seen seizures of drugs, for example, in Australia associated with bikey gangs that were larger then the British just had their largest cocaine seizure last week ever. Mm-hmm. And we've had large ones in Australia. We have half the population. So good quality policing is much more useful than the bikey legislation in stopping the crime. So that's a resource issue. That's a skill issue. But it's also a legislative powers issue for the police. Now, that also raises other human rights issues. But those sort of laws have had a lot more scrutiny, a lot more case law, and we know their boundaries. We know the boundaries for telecommunication intercepts. We know the boundaries for searching with warrants and so forth. So we have a lot more experience with that, and that has been evaluated, whereas these bikey laws haven't. So if it's about your goal is to stop the crime, I would go to those laws first. If your goal Mm. is to improve people's confidence and their feeling of safety in the community, then some of the bikey laws like stopping patches and stopping the you know 40 or 50 motorcycles riding down the middle of a town those two things might be very useful but you may already have laws that do that and you may not need to create a brand new law 
Police Reasonable Thing is an ongoing issue here in New Zealand and it seems like yes, everything everywhere. these days boils, boils down to Reasonable Thing, doesn't it? Mark Locks, an Associate Professor at the University of Queensland. Thank you very much for your uh, time and expertise just now. Thank you. Yesterday we asked you if you think under-16s should be banned from using social media after the news lawmakers in Florida are looking to do that there. And yes, we asked you to vote on social media. Irony, well and truly noted. But wowee, 85% of you, last time I checked the poll, said yup. Get the young ones off it. And that is also exactly what our expert told us would be the best course of action as well. If you missed that, that was Monday's episode of Newsable. Definitely worth a listen. Now, to get involved in our next Instagram poll, make sure you're following NZ Stuff. In a world where carbon copies of products just pop up everywhere, retailers are working really hard to make theirs stand out from everything from personalised drinks to customised shoes. In fact, bespoke products and personalised services has been listed by the international business magazine Forbes as one of the 10 biggest business trends for the coming year. But why is the trend growing now? This feels like something I did at high school. Well, someone who's been looking into it is Marianne McCarr, a senior lecturer in marketing at RMIT University in Melbourne. Kia ora, Marianne. Welcome to Newsable. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. Why are we all getting sucked in by something that feels like it's made more specifically and specially for us? Consumers really love personalized things. They love having um, something that's very theirs. They can call their own, um, that they feel special. They also want to feel loved. Uh, they want to feel unique and, and having that individualized experience with the brand, with the product, with the service. Um, and that's why brands have caught on to that and realized, hey, um, we need to start making something different, something unique, so that we can actually compete with the customer's attention. The other thing is that uh, brands are just, there's way too many out there and starting to lose that uh, edge. And that's another way that brands can actually stand out. Um, and and actually attract the customer's attention. Why are we prepared to pay more for something that might just have our name on it? it it's so special. Our names are really special to us. Mm. That's why when Coke came up with their brand, Share a Coke, um, it really got traction because it had your name and then people wanted to gift that to other people. So mm. just from that name, it, it has that connection. And there is that theory called psychological ownership and psychological ownership makes us feel, again, obviously we don't own the brand, but having our name affiliated with that brand, we feel closer to that brand. We feel closer to the product, harder now to get detached from it. How are companies collecting data to then further or choose how they will design their products? Well, every time we uh, browse their website. Um, obviously, we're allowing, we're, we're sharing cookies, right, with the brand. Um, when we buy something, our purchasing history is collected and uh, historical data, what I bought before, uh, what I've visited, where, what part of the website, I vis- all this data is collected by the brand to come up with what they believe is the right personalized product for you. And they would recommend that to you, especially when you're if you're buying something online, when you're checking out, you'll see, even using Amazon, for example, you'll see these options. Hey, you bought this. 
you might like this, this, and this. Mm. And that's uh, a really innovative way um, of collecting data, historical data, predicting future purchases and what you might like as well. I didn't even think about that as being an element in this whole personalization uh, area. What does it say about us as people that we need to feel so special that our name is on something? We see it with Gen Z. Um, they really want to feel unique and different. We all want to feel different because um, everyone is able now to buy things. Um, and we believe that you know, through a consumerist kind of society, the best way to feel something is through buying, is through purchasing. Look at this materialist world. It's a bit sad though, isn't it? It is. It is quite sad. And also, does it not remove the uniqueness factor if we're all buying personalized things? Yeah, I mean, the more personalization at scale grows, the less personalization it becomes, the less <laughs> it becomes the more and more brands do it. But that's what, that's the thing. Very few brands are able to do it right sure. because they can afford uh, to buy big data. They can afford technology, proprietary technology. They can afford large research budget and so the small brands are kind of losing out in that sense and finding it harder to compete it's very interesting stuff marion mccarr from rmit university in melbourne thank you very much for your time thanks for having me if you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead the long read from stuff is the podcast for you Each week, we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture, and more. You'll also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. Here's something that's definitely worth talking about. More than 2,700 animals considered legally dangerous in the UK are being kept as pets in the UK. The figures are from last year and have been collated by looking at all the animals local councils licensed as pets in 2023. On the list, wild boar. 819 of those bad boys are being kept as pets. There are 60 cobra that have been licensed by local councils in England. But here's the one that got me. There are 175 lemurs that Brits are calling their own. 175, that's up, by the way. In 2020, there were only 150 that were considered pets in UK households. Lemurs. Now that I know you can keep a lemur as a pet in the UK, am I considering moving there? Time will tell. But maybe to try and convince me to stay? You could chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. How about that as a deal? I'll stay if you chuck us a like. No promises, though. I I have to be completely honest here. A pet lemur is super tempting. And I know Nikki Wells, at the very least, would join me. Some very, very exciting news. New Zealand, we have our first Olympians. Speed climbers Julian David and Sarah Tetzlaff have officially had the call-up to represent Aotearoa at this year's Paris Olympics. And their selection also makes them the first climbers to represent our country at the Olympics as well. How buddy good. And 19-year-old Julian David is on the line now to Korero. Julian, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) 
First of all, Ted, who's my fiancé, and I became utterly obsessed with speed climbing at the last Olympics. It was appointment viewing for the pair of us. But for those unfamiliar, for those uninitiated, can you explain what speed climbing is? Basically a 15 metre tall wall. It's a standardised route, so it's the same everywhere in the world, made up of 20 holds. And the wall's on a five degree angle leaning forwards, which a lot of people don't actually know. And it's racing to the top. (laughs) (laughs) It is literally, it's like rock climbing, but racing. Yeah, basically, yeah. And how fast are we talking? Like, what's your, I mean, what's your record? Or what's the average? Can you just, like, give, give, give people a picture? Um, like, all the competitors will be running under six seconds um, at the competition. So, sorry, did you say six? Yeah, under six seconds. <laughs> <laughs> that is nuts. Julian, how do you find out you're good at that? I mean, a lot of people find out in different ways. I guess you could say the same about pole vaulting. How do you get into that? But for me, I fell out of a tree and then found the climbing wall at my local school and started climbing, so... <laughs> Epic. Now, I also noticed you've said you watched the 2012 Olympics mm. and decided then that you wanted to compete at the Games eventually. Yep. That is one heck of a goal that you have set and smashed. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I do remember, I think Peter Burling was probably the athlete back then that stood out to me, him and his sailing. But I was a seven-year-old doing all these sports and I was like, yeah, I want to do it. I don't know what sport, but I definitely want to go eventually. Um, Eventually... Found climbing, set on speed climbing, and then just did really well. And I was like, hey, look, we can go for the LA28 or we can just go for it now and try to do Harris because originally we were aiming for LA28. We're like, no, stuff it, we'll just try it now. <laughs> and it all turned out to be quite good. So. <laughs> yeah, well, you're not just quite good, are you? You're the current junior world champion, thank you very much. Mm. 2024 is certainly looking good for you, my friend. Tell me about the moment you found out you'd been selected to represent us in Paris this year. Oh, I just got the call from my coach. He was actually in Paris at the time, scoping out the venue because we were already qualified, but we didn't know if we were selected yet. He gives me a call. I'm just at home. And yeah, he was like, oh, is anyone around? I was like, nah. He was like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, just sitting in bed. And he was like, you made it. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't believe it. It was so cool. Julian David, one of our first two announced athletes that will be competing and representing New Zealand at this year's Paris Olympics. Well done. I cannot wait to watch you do your thing. And you already know I will. I already told you, me and my fiance are obsessed. So well done. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I have already decided I'll be leaving the Olympic dreams to my nieces and nephews. I'm yet to decide which sport I'll be lobbying for them to compete in, but they're all young. They're all very, very young. So I reckon we're in for a chance. Anyway, back to the drawing board. That is Newsable for today. I'm Imogen Wells. Maybe pole vaulting? Maybe speed climbing? I've got Julian's number now. Have a great day. Newsable. News that's worth talking about. If you liked it and reckon it's also worth supporting, please make a contribution at stuff.co.nz support.